Hong Kong is on the brink. Injuries, there were arrests. Beijing has described the pro-democracy protests as, quote, conduct close to terrorism. The central government would not sit on its hands and watch. Demonstrators have been taken to the streets with no signs of protests coming to a halt. It's a smaller group of people, but very intense. The violence is being ratcheted up. But protesters say it's all too little, too late. This uproar has resurrected long-standing conflicts between Hong Kong and China. Could Hong Kong be headed toward another Tiananmen Square? In this new podcast, we follow what's happening on the ground in Hong Kong and talk to experts who are looking ahead to what will happen next. I'm Andrew Schwartz with Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies here at CSIS. This is Hong Kong on the Brink. Last Sunday, an estimated 1.7 million Hong Kong protesters came out on a rainy Hong Kong afternoon for a largely peaceful march. But on Wednesday, clashes happened again, this time in a subway station between protesters and Hong Kong police. Tension with the Chinese government in Beijing is ratcheting up. In this episode, I'll discuss with Jude Blanchett, the CSIS Freeman Chair in China Studies, what's the latest on the ground, what's happening with social media, and how the United States Congress and the White House are responding to the clashes and what's next for the protesters. Jude, the situation in Hong Kong is so fluid that even as we sit here, there's things going on in subway station in Hong Kong. What are we seeing? Yeah, so news is coming in right now. We've just seen it come across CNN that protesters in a subway station suddenly began tipping over trash cans and using fire extinguishers against the police. And to your point, I think just a few hours ago even, we thought there'd been a tactical shift by both the protest movement and the police to de-escalate the situation. We saw Sunday night upwards of 1.7 million marchers in a, in a peaceful demonstration. And that protest seemed to be an indication that they'd lost some ground after the violence of the airport the week prior. Can you explain that to me? How did they lose ground if there's a million seven protesters out there. And the images were really vivid. I mean, colorful umbrellas, millions of people. And again, you know, this is Hong Kong. For Americans, picture millions of people in the streets of New York on a rainy Sunday night demonstrating. So how is that losing ground? What I meant by losing ground is, if we remember a week and a half ago now, which seems so long ago in events unfolding so fast in Hong Kong. I should say also, we're talking here in Washington. It's August 21st. And on the day that we're talking, we had just seen some pretty rough footage in the subway stations that Jude just described. But I digress. So how are they losing ground? Let me step back. I think this is in many ways a battle for narrative, right? One okay. between the protesters and, and Beijing. And each side is attempting to gain the higher ground in terms of perception. The protesters are doing their best to hold the ground that this is a largely peaceful, nonviolent, pro-democracy movement that is looking for the Hong Kong government to respond to democratic pressures and not be taking orders from Beijing. At the same time, you have elements within the protest movement who are frustrated with previous attempts at protesting against the Hong Kong government and are arguing they need to have more aggressive techniques if they're going to shake the situation loose and if they're finally going to get the attention of Hong Kong. And so that culminated a week and a half ago at the Hong Kong airport, where after a day of sit-in protests, which led to the effective shutdown of the airport, we saw the scenes of 
some violent behavior of the protesters, including the temporary kidnapping of a propaganda worker for Global Times, which is a state media outlet. Going back to this past Sunday night, which was the 18th, we saw on this drizzly day 1.7 million marchers go out in a very peaceful, orderly way clearly to try to pull back and wrench the narrative back in their direction of a largely peaceful movement. At the same time, we've seen from Beijing a concerted effort to paint the opposite here, right? An attempt to paint this as a wild, chaotic group of looters who are disturbing the public order. And this is where social media plays such a crucial role here for both sides. This is, for many of us who are not on the ground there, this is a movement and this is a battle that we're seeing played out over short clips on social media, Twitter to be specific, and Facebook to a lesser extent. So this is where to frame the narrative and control the narrative. Protesters are doing their best to show the totality of this movement and to move it away from a few quote-unquote bad actors. Beijing, on the other hand, is taking these few bad actors and trying to generalize this to essentially stain the entire movement based on the actions of a limited few. And so that's why this battle for narrative is so important because I think the Hong Kong protesters and marchers understand if they're going to ultimately prevail here, this has to be because they've won the sympathy of not only the local population in Hong Kong who aren't involved in this, but more importantly, the global community, especially the United States. You mentioned Twitter and Facebook. On Monday, both Facebook and Twitter announced plans to take action on coordinated attempts by the Chinese government or those associated with it to manipulate information on social media about the protests underway in Hong Kong. Tell me about what's happening and what the Chinese response to Twitter and Facebook's been. This is, I think, an incredibly important development here and one that will have implications for the United States especially, although we're seeing this as what looks like a localized response by Twitter and Facebook. But essentially, out of the blue, after being called out by one media outlet, Twitter put up a post where it said, we're removing upwards of a thousand accounts, which largely were state-directed, many of these were bots, that were attempting to shift that narrative again. Control the narrative. Really trying to play up the violence of some of the protesters and generalize that towards the whole movement. What Twitter ended up finding, though, is these were state-directed efforts. And some careful analysis, which has happened over the past 24 hours, saw a consistent pattern that supports the idea that this was state-directed. If you look at the times of the postings, these are largely in daytime work hours in China. And they also have the crucial two-hour break between 12 and 2, which is when many state workers are having their lunch and their nap. So this fits a pattern we've seen in other cases of state-directed hacking coming from China. But this is why this is really important, not only for Hong Kong, but important for us. For a long time, we've said that interference by China is different from interference like the kind we've seen with Russia. Countries like New Zealand and Australia have been dealing with the issue of interference for a while now from the Communist Party of China. But the United States, it seemed off limits. That's more or less Russian behavior to mess around in U.S. politics. I think what we're seeing here in Hong Kong is indicative of what we're likely to see more of in the United States, especially as we move towards our own presidential election. You think that China could interfere with our election using social media? I think it would be odd if China wasn't trying to do that, given the power of social media and the power of framing. They've seen the successful playbook here in the 2016 election of what you can do to influence opinion in the United States through social media. We've seen that they've done this in Taiwan, in New Zealand, in Australia, and other parts of the world. And now we see they've done this in Hong Kong. So this is an important moment for us to wake up to the possibilities of a state-directed fake news coming from China, not just Russia. We know the Chinese are good at cyber. We know they're good at cyber. We know they're particularly good at cyber theft of IP. How are their skills at cyber propaganda and changing the narrative as you're talking about it? 
That's an interesting question, because if we look at a lot of domestic propaganda in China, it appears to most of us as pretty stilted and wooden, and we would say, from our perspective, ineffective. Right. It looks like someone who took a nap every day at 12 o'clock. Yeah. Or someone who is making propaganda in a Leninist political system where you don't get much creativity. Right. That's what I mean. It's very rigid. Looking at the propaganda that we've seen used on Twitter, it's much savvier because it's an easier narrative to push. It's essentially just putting out videos of protesters smashing windows, overturning garbage can. They've been able to capture that narrative a little bit easier. I don't know what it will look like if and when they turn to U.S. politics, but I think it's important for us to begin to socialize this discussion that it is certainly with the realm of possibility that we'll have a Chinese effort to shift the narrative here in the United States. So is this something that real China watchers are doing right now, looking at this to be able to confront China if China starts doing this with the United States? I'd say especially compared to 12 months ago when this wasn't really on anyone's radar, except for, again, to mention Taiwan, Australia, New Zealand, who've had a longer experience dealing with China in terms of what we call influence operations. I think this is a turning point for us, at least. I don't want to take away from the discussion of Twitter and Facebook in Hong Kong here, but I think it is important that we see an emerging playbook for how, how China is likely to deal with the United States, especially as, look, things are going to get tougher between the United States and China over the next 12 months. Going back to Hong Kong, do you think things are going to get tougher between the protesters and Chinese government? The basic math of this situation hasn't changed. And again, looking at the news we just saw on CNN 20 minutes ago would seem to prove that right. In last week's podcast, we talk about this mutually reinforcing circle of mistrust. That hasn't changed fundamentally. We've got a obdurate political system in Beijing, which is frustrated with the ability of Hong Kong Chief Executive Carrie Lam to deal with the situation and to enforce a sustainable political stability there. We've got Carrie Lam, who came out yesterday and gave a fairly mealy-mouthed set of comments about how she wanted to start dialogue with some of the protesters. And they but, dismissed it as a trap. Well, because it, it's quite clear that all that Carrie Lam is trying to do is get people to stay at home, right, to get off the streets. But there's no credible set of institutions or policies that she's put forth that if you were a protester would convince you that we should actively help dissipate the force that we've got behind us right now. And you still have on to finish this circle of mistrust. You've got the protesters who are looking at both Carrie Lam's administration and seeing it as just a puppet to Beijing. And they're looking at Beijing and seeing a set of behaviors by Beijing over the past week or so, which have just reinforced their pre-existing concerns. The most recent fear that has been validated is the detention of a British consular official in China that was just announced yesterday. This is Simon. This is Simon Chung, who is a Hong Kong passport holder who was making a visit to the mainland China. And when he was coming back through customs, was detained, what's called an administrative detention, which can last up to 15 days. And when you're essentially incommunicado. So where do they detain him? Is he under house arrest? Is he in a jail? He'd be in a, well, so there's no information on that, but he'd most likely be in a police facility at the border. But what's interesting about it from Beijing's perspective, this shows how they're still reacting in such a ham-fisted manner, where we know that one of the, the core concerns that started this movement was this extradition bill. It's essentially saying that Hong Kong citizens were now subject to being extradited to China. And the problem there is nobody wants to get caught up in China's quote-unquote legal system. It's punitive, it's subjective, it's opaque. So guess what Beijing does a couple days ago? They detain a Hong Kong passport holder in China with charges that are punitive, appear to be completely subjective, and are non-transparent. 
which and only reinforces the existing concerns of the Hong Kong protesters. Right. And then this is their way of exerting control over Hong Kong citizens who want to be able to criticize the government, want to be able to say whatever they want to say. So the well, in this case, it was it was a consular official. I mean, this is an incredibly serious step to take. This shows either Beijing is clumsy and unaware of what it's doing, or it's trying to really dig in its heels and take an incredibly hard line. Either way, this is not good for the scenario we talked about last week, which is what's Beijing going to do if it finally cracks down. So is Simon Chung going to become a symbol of this protest movement now, do you think? or I think the power of the protest movement is the size. We've seen, especially with this one as compared to the umbrella protests where we saw some key individuals emerge as the face of the movement, what's really powerful about this is this is a large group of individuals that cuts across many of the existing class lines in Hong Kong. So it's the size of the movement that I think is the power of it, not any one individual. And I don't think Simon Chung would become the face when, when they have a much more powerful symbol. And this is why we don't know any single leader of this movement, right? There's no named leaders of this movement. This is why there's no official head of the movement, right? They want it to be a big, broad movement about a large group of people. Yeah. I think there's a contingent reason and there's a structural reason. The larger reason is no one individual emerged from the umbrella protests with the credibility to drive a new round of protests, in large part because the umbrella protests were snuffed out. So this has emerged somewhat spontaneously and somewhat leaderless. But I think it's been, and you can see this by the results and, and the reaction from Beijing, this, this has been extraordinarily effective in, in waking Beijing up to the level of discontentment and frustration that was existing in Hong Kong. What's the position the Trump administration is now taking on this? There's clearly no organic interest in human rights from the administration or from President Trump, at least. Unsurprisingly, it's been difficult to nail down exactly what the administration thinks about this. Right. The president's seen, gone back and forth. Yeah, exactly. He, Even over the past week, when there have been some additional comments from President Trump, it's not entirely clear what the bottom line is. He, he on his way back from a, a golf outing this weekend, linked the Chinese government using violence in Hong Kong to the possibility of a trade deal. And he said, in effect, if they do violence, then it will be very unlikely that we'll be able to come to a resolution on, on a trade deal, which I should add, by the way, was, was very unlikely anyway. But this is now a, a different direction from what Trump and Trump administration officials were saying just a few days earlier, which was, to, to quote Wilbur Ross, he'd said this was a quote-unquote internal matter. Uh, President Trump had said something similar a week ago saying, you know, this is a difficult situation. I, I, I hope China and Hong Kong figure this out. What I think is different now, though, is Congress is starting to get involved. Yeah, I was going to say, doesn't Mitch McConnell has a pretty pointed op-ed this morning in the Wall Street Journal? Yeah, the title of it is We Stand with Hong Kong. I think it was an op-ed that actually could have been written by any any number of members of Congress, including, let's say, you know, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Right. There was a common language we're seeing across statements from both Democrats and Republicans of, we stand with Hong Kong, we support the, the Hong Kong protesters and their peaceful efforts, and any move by China would necessitate some severe reactions, reactions by the United States. So that's interesting insofar as I think when we come back from the break in, in early September when Congress is back in session, if this situation hasn't died down and if, if Beijing is continuing to push it to the brink, I suspect you're going to see a very vocal Congress on this issue. And the, the Trump administration is going to have to, I think, take a stronger line on this. Well, what about the Democratic presidential candidates? What are they saying? 
Yeah, interestingly, Axios sent out a survey or, or contacted all the Democratic candidates over the past couple of days. You saw a number of candidates who didn't want to give an answer. So Cory Booker, Julian Castro, a Tulsa number of- Tulsa Gabbard. They kicked the can or, or avoided that. But then you saw some who came out with- Abstract support for the protesters. I think folks are still a little hesitant to really weigh in on this. What's the hesitation? It's really volatile, and you you basically have to go in on what you think the United States should do beyond more mealy mouth pronunciations about simply standing up for human rights. So, I mean, Joe know, Biden's been pretty direct. Yeah, Joe Biden. Pete, Pete Buttigieg, I should say, was out earlier than most. He came out a couple of weeks ago on Twitter saying, uh, you know, we stand steadfast with, with the Hong Kong people. I think what would be helpful in terms of leadership from the United States, though, is we need to have a more concerted effort across the U.S. government, including and up to the White House, saying we won't stand for this and essentially raising the price for Beijing of any potential action. And what it looks like now from Beijing's perspective is a scattershot of, of reactions. And so I think for them, probably a very confusing job right now is being the intelligence official in Beijing who has to brief General Secretary Xi Jinping on what the, what the U.S. is going to do about this, because I think that's, that's very unclear at this moment. Well, what do you think the U.S. is going to do? Much of that depends on what happens in the next week, I think. If this looks like this is going the way of Beijing acceding to some of the demands of the protesters, sacking Carrie Lam, fully withdrawing the extradition bill, putting forward some sort of investigation into police brutality, then I think the United States should do what some of the statements have been saying, which is just making it known that we're watching this situation very closely and that the United States will not stand for or will not countenance violent actions from Beijing. The real very, very tough question, though, and one I don't think we've all fully thought through is, what happens if Beijing uses force here? What happens if the Hong Kong police really crack down at the direct request of Beijing? What happens if the People's Armed Police cross over from Shenzhen to help enforce order? And there, all we've seen for possible solutions are uh, 1992 Hong Kong Policy Act, which Mitch McConnell, as he mentioned in the op-ed this morning, he, he co-wrote. That essentially treats Hong Kong as a separate economic entity for trade meaning it isn't being subjected to the tariffs that Trump has slapped on China. A change in that law would bring a lot of economic pain to, to Hong Kong. We haven't really cataloged, though, a more robust set of tools that we can bring to bear uh, if China takes that action. If we think back to 1989, and not to be a prisoner to that historical analogy, but our response after Tiananmen Square was, in public, we, we threw up our arms in outrage, Behind the scenes, we said to Deng Xiaoping's government, don't worry, let Congress get angry, flail around, things will return back to normal pretty soon. So I don't think that's that's a tenable solution anymore. This isn't 1989 for many reasons. I'm unsure what's going to happen, but I think this is certainly something that Beijing is weighing right now, which is what, what's the response of the U.S. going to be? Yeah. Do we have options, though? Do we have real options of levers that we can use? You know, the question is, how much of the hammer do we want to bring down on China and how quickly? We've got a fairly incohate strategy on China right now. And so this could accelerate that. Hong Kong could be the galvanizing issue 
which takes these independent strands of Democrats, Republicans, think tanks. We're seeing a, a increased hardening of U.S. popular opinion on China. Just over the past couple of months, we've seen a reversal of a fairly optimistic, positive perspective by the U.S. population against China. Over the past year, for example, we've seen poll numbers go from 50% considerate arrival to most recent ones is 63% considerate arrival. Hong Kong could be the moment where we go from playing footsie with the idea that we're in a Cold War with China to being the galvanizing moment where we are. And then behind the scenes in Washington, D.C., there's a lot of potential policies, a lot of potential tools that the U.S. can bring to bear on China that, that we may see those come out sooner than many were expecting. Jude, this is great. Thanks for doing this today. We'll be back next week. Great. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 